The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. Negotiate Anything is produced by the American Negotiation Institute. And with over 3 million downloads and listeners in over 180 countries, listeners just like you have made it the number one negotiation podcast in the world. I'm Kwame Christian, and I'm the director of the American Negotiation Institute. We're growing, and I want to introduce you to our new team members and new trainers. This will give you new and diverse perspectives on negotiation and conflict resolution. And that's why Shane Martin, our head of sales and partnerships, is going to serve as co-host of the show from time to time. We're excited to continue to provide you with the best content that will help to make your difficult conversations easier, both at work and at home. Lastly, our team conducts negotiation and conflict resolution trainings in the United States and abroad. Our trainings will give you the practical skills you need to resolve conflict, negotiate, lead, and persuade with confidence. Click the link in the description below to learn more about how we can make your difficult conversations easier. I am a sort of for my day job, I'm a partner at an investment firm called Fresh Hospitality that essentially invests kind of across the food value spectrum. So we invest in everything from farms to production plants to really the two biggest pieces of our portfolio are uh, restaurants and commercial real estate sort of in and around the food world. And we also have a number of kind of other investments that are related and support a lot of what we do. And within that, you know, one of my primary focuses is sourcing new deal opportunities, closing investments, and looking for things to invest in. So from that perspective, I'm constantly putting together transactions, joint ventures, partnerships, all kinds of different business arrangements that negotiation and plays a huge role. And having a negotiation kind of toolkit is really, really beneficial. The other sort of hobby or side project that I have that, that you just touched on a moment ago, I also am the creator and host of a podcast called The Science of Success, which is all about really the art of decision making and and how to it's a, kind of at the intersection of psychology and personal development and how you can learn to think better and more deeply understand reality. I love it. That is so cool. So how did you get into such an interesting niche? How'd that start? So out of school, I worked in New York on Wall Street for a number of years. And just through a connection that I had, I had an opportunity to I'm from Nashville originally, and that's where Fresh is based. I had an opportunity to come back to Nashville and get involved. And uh, that was about six years ago, a little less than six years ago. And, uh, and it's been great. It's been really, really fun. Very cool. And tell us more about the podcast and uh, what kind of things people can expect to learn from it, because my goal is to get as many of my people <laughs> listening to your show because it, it adds so much value. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So the podcast, you know, it started out, it's kind of funny. I call myself an accidental podcaster because I didn't really know anything about podcasting and, and I didn't set out to be a podcaster or to create a podcast. It started out because I'm an investor first and foremost. And I really started, you know, it sort of dawned on me at some point. I was like, hey, maybe I should study the most successful investor ever, a.k.a. Warren Buffett. Right. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And so I started basically reading everything that's ever been written by or about Buffett. And through that, really started digging into reading a lot about his business partner, a guy named Charlie Munger, who's an incredible thinker and really, really smart guy. 
And through that sort of rabbit hole that started, I, I kind of got into psychology and I got really into what I call the art of decision making and how to build a toolkit of what Munger calls mental models to more deeply understand reality and to help kind of impact your thinking over the long term. The simplest way that I think about it is, you know, focusing on improving your decision making is kind of like compound interest for your brain in the sense that a 1% improvement in your ability to make better decisions or your ability to understand things more deeply impacts everything that you do, whether it's finding a new job, whether it's buying a new car, whether it's purchasing a house, whether it's getting a date with somebody, all of those different things. If you can cultivate a skill set of fundamental tools and negotiation and the components of negotiation are absolutely parts of that, it continues to impact everything you do for the rest of your life. So it's a really, really high leverage thing to be focused on. And that's kind of how I got into it. But <laughs> I got a little bit sidetracked there. The The way that I ended up with the podcast is I'd had an, a bunch of what I would call basically just like kitchen table conversations with friends, fellow entrepreneurs about a lot of this stuff. And I ended up having a conversation with a friend of mine who at the time had a small science news website called redorbit.com. And he's since actually sold that website in the podcast is no longer directly affiliated with them in any way. But at the time he was like, he's like, Hey dude, let's take all this stuff that you're talking on and on about. Let's turn that into a podcast and we'll put it on my website. And I was like, okay, I don't know anything about podcasting, but sure. And that was, we launched in the fall of 2015 and through about the end of the year, we had around 7,000 total downloads, which I was pretty excited about, you know, having not really known what to expect. It was cool to kind of you know, launch something and have thousands of people downloading it and people from around the world and all that. But we really hit a huge kind of growth curve starting at the beginning of 2016. And to date, we have uh, almost, I think we have just over 780,000 downloads now, listeners in over 200 countries. And it's really taken off a lot more than I ever anticipated when we kind of started it as a little side project. That is Awesome, man. I'm so happy for you. I mean, but the thing is, too, it's well earned because, like I said, the content is incredibly high level. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And you actually answered one of my next questions because I when I was looking through your background, I saw that your background is in poli sci and I see Mandarin as well. And I was surprised yep. not to see psychology, but you answered it there. That's how you got into it with the you said it was Munger. Is his last name? Yeah, Charlie Munger. Fascinating. Out of curiosity, have you ever read the book Simple Rules? No, I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's a book. I read it a couple weeks ago or last week. Really, it's just about simplifying decision making and um, kind of taking a play off of the triage method that um, they use in medicine and kind of bringing that idea to other aspects of your life to make decision making easier in complex situations. I thought it was a really fun book, really simple, really. I guess that's <laughs> it was meant to be that way. But it was almost similar to the Checklist Manifesto. Did you read that one? Yeah, yeah. Tokawande, great book. Yes. It was like a Checklist Manifesto part two. So maybe you should check it out. It's, it's a fun one. I'll add it to my reading list for sure. Yeah. Cool. So tell us about how you prepare for negotiations and just hearing more about the way that you see life. I'm I'm really excited to see your your mental approach to this. Definitely. And, and I mean, before, you know, before we dig into that, I think it's important, or I guess I kind of mentioned already, like I negotiate in some form or fashion almost on a daily basis, right? A huge component of my job is structuring transactions, structuring investments, you know, 
kind of negotiating different financial terms and structures. And even when it goes into some of the various companies that we invest in, things like negotiating salary packages and benefits and all of these different components. I literally had a conversation earlier today where I was negotiating with somebody. And so before we get into kind of what my preparation methods are, which I think are super important and one of the biggest takeaways, and I know you talk about a lot on the show, I think they did a study at Harvard that like the single biggest thing that correlated with negotiating success was time spent preparing. So there's no question that preparation is an essential, essential component. But I think it's, I think I'd, I'd love to start with kind of like what, how do I think about negotiation? What are kind of the core components? And then that sort of feeds into how I prepare, if that makes sense. Absolutely. No, I'm excited. And (laughs) first of all, I am so excited because you know what you're talking about. You know what you're doing. So yeah, go on. I, I'm excited to see where this goes. So there's, there's a couple of things that I think about when I think about a negotiation or when I think about putting together a deal. The first is that, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't understand. Whenever I think about a transaction, think about a negotiation, it's never from my perspective, and, and people may have different sort of styles and different different ways about this, but from my perspective and when I approach any negotiation, I never try to manipulate somebody. I never try to sort of high pressure sales or bully somebody into conceding something. And I think that a lot of people, when they think about negotiation, they think that it's like all of this stuff about like trying to trick somebody and like, oh, I got you to agree to this X, Y, Z thing. Like, That's not what it is at all. To me, the fundamental skill of negotiating goes back to the old analogy of, and I forget if it's George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, but something about, they were asked like, if you had five hours to chop down a tree, you know, what would you do? And they said, it's been the first four hours sharpening the ax, right? In the last hour, chopping it down. And the fundamental thing about negotiation is I spend the vast majority of my time, like 80, 90% of my time in any negotiation seeking to understand what the other person wants. That's what I spend almost all of my energy on is trying to understand what's their position, what do they want, what are they trying to achieve. And by doing that, once you have a really, really clear understanding of what the other party wants, and I'm assuming you kind of go into the negotiation with with a deep understanding of what you want, and if you don't, you should also get really clear about that. To me, I just look at negotiation essentially as putting together sort of a Venn diagram of the overlapping needs and wants that each party has and trying to, you know, really the negotiation is about trying to kind of sort of share or demark that portion of the Venn diagram that overlaps. And a lot of people think that it's about like bullying or forcing someone into agreeing to something that's not good for them or that they wouldn't want to do. And from my perspective, that's absolutely not the case. And I think you should always try to approach a negotiation from the perspective of, trying to create a win-win and trying to create something that satisfies the majority of the things that the person you're negotiating with wants to achieve. I love it. This is so good. So can you give an example? Of course, you adjust things as necessary for confidentiality purposes, but of some of your negotiations where coming into it from a win-win perspective turned out to be beneficial and where you were able to see that overlap in that Venn diagram? Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you kind of two contextual examples within the food industry, which is where I I focus most of my time and energy. We look for a very particular type of entrepreneur to invest in. And and our our business model, to give you a little bit more to kind of contextualize this example, is we invest primarily in what's called the fast casual segment of the restaurant. We'll, We'll just go dive into the restaurant vertical specifically for this example. We invest primarily in the fast casual segment and we look to invest in restaurant concepts that have 
a lot of growth potential. And we look to find entrepreneurs that have sort of reached their limit in terms of their ability to scale the business. We look for something that has a lot of traction, something that has success, customer adoption, and the founders basically sitting there thinking, you know, oh man, I really wish I could build some more units. I really think this thing has the potential to be, you know, a national brand, but I can't, you know, figure out, you know, I'm super busy, right? The restaurant business is incredibly demanding. And so they're scrambling all over the place, you know, their wife's doing the accounting, like all of these things. And it's very chaotic. We come in, invest in the company and layer in all of our systems and processes to help them scale up and help them grow. And we really focus on what's called the back of the house in the restaurant business. We really focus on the technology, the accounting, the processes, the systems, the things that enable them to focus on why they got into the business in the first place. Things like the food, things like the guest experience, things like the brand. So to give you two examples, and this almost applies to the selection, even sort of before the negotiation takes place, there's a lot of really successful restaurants that the chef doesn't necessarily want to go and build this massive empire of restaurants, right? And we would, you know, it wouldn't behoove us and we don't go and track those guys down, even if they have a line around the block and they're killing it, we're not going to go knock on their door and be like, Hey, you should really take this thing and blow it up and grow it. And like, you know, it'd be great for you and you could make a lot of money and, you know, you could go get a beach house and do all this stuff and try to like convince them that that's what they need to do when they're sitting there thinking, no, I kind of like what I'm doing. And I like the sort of, you know, the craftsmanship of this sort of single experience And this is what I want to do. And I don't really care about building all this other stuff and building this empire and all these things. What we look for are the entrepreneurs that are saying, man, I really want to grow this thing, but I have no freaking idea how to do it. And what we do is come in and layer in all the systems that help them do that. Right. And so from that perspective, I'm not trying to go find somebody that I have to convince to do a deal with me. I'm trying to when I meet when somebody, you know, when I meet with somebody as a prospective investment, I spend all my time trying to understand what do they really want? What are they trying to achieve? And if what they want doesn't align with what we do as a business or what we're looking to do when we invest in a company, then it's not really worth pursuing. I'm not even if they have an amazing concept and I know that it could become something that's a national, really successful restaurant concept. I'm not going to waste my time or their time trying to pursue something that is sort of trying to convince them that it's a good idea. And there's a specific deal I'm thinking of that probably, you know, six months ago was an amazing company, huge opportunity. And the founder kind of kept waffling back and forth between wanting to do it, not wanting to do it. And eventually we were like, look, like if you're not 100 percent on board with this, we're just going to move on because we have a ton of opportunities. And that gets into another point of negotiation, which is you should always create options for yourself and you should always look for ways to create leverage. But we have enough other opportunities that we're never going to go all in and and have to be totally committed on a single opportunity. Every opportunity, we should have enough wherewithal to be able to walk away and be totally fine and realize that we're only going to sort of pursue opportunities that we know can be win-win for both people. Does your company invest in professional development training? If you believe that your team would benefit from a negotiation workshop, all you need to do is go to our website, fill out the workshop request form, and then we'll set up a time to chat. These workshops are completely customizable and we've done them all around the country. Negotiation and conflict resolution skills are beneficial across all professions, but they're especially useful in procurement, purchasing, sales, sourcing, and contract management. Our calendar is filling up quickly and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year. If you think you might want one, I'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the show. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming healthcare technology. From artificial intelligence to robotics and beyond, health tech is reinventing what's possible. Every year, Medtronic improves the lives of 74 million people, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. I love it. And really what this exemplifies is the fact that there is no real beginning and end to a negotiation because you're doing this work beforehand. You know, that comes in with the preparation, but you're also vetting the people so heavily beforehand that if they are even able to make it to the negotiation table through the vetting process, you already know that there is a a likelihood of synergy between you and that person. So a lot of those problems that people might run into at the table you avoid those completely because of your preparation process and your ability to vet out people before they even make it to that stage. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's all about, you know, I mean, you can almost think of it in the sense of like a sales funnel, right? It's all about selection at the front end of the funnel to be able to cultivate and really whittle down only to the people who are going to be a really good fit. And then the negotiation itself oftentimes is pretty simple. Mm-hmm. And it goes right back to what you were saying with um, the axe example. You know, your goal is to make it as easy as possible through the preparation stage. So the actual negotiation is a little bit less painless. Exactly. Unless, of course, you're the tree (laughs) in that (laughs) metaphor. Yep. So tell us a little bit more about options, because I think that is something that's overlooked by a lot of people. So I don't want to gloss over that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the other fundamental components of negotiation is is finding ways to to create leverage, right? And and that can take form or take shape in many different ways, but options is is one of the most simple ways, right? You have to have you have to have the ability to walk away, right? And whoever's less willing to walk away is always the person who gets less out of the negotiation. And if you're kind of all in on negotiation, you open yourself up to the possibility of making a bad deal or getting exploited or just having it blow up because they, you know, you almost come off sometimes as as sort of too desperate. And so we, we, I mean, we're fortunate that we've cultivated over many years and kind of built up an essentially sort of an inbound pipeline of deal flow and, and leads and investment opportunities that you know, we, we essentially say no, like we have people constantly reaching out to us that want us to invest in their businesses. And and we say no to 90% of the people. And occasionally we'll, we'll sort of, you know, whittle down and find the select few people that would be a really good fit and meet with them. But even in that case, you know, we're not going to make a deal that doesn't fit our terms. And, and we know exactly what makes sense for us. And we're not going to stretch on something, even if it sounds exciting, we're not going to stretch ourselves out of what we know, kind of the right strike zone is for a transaction because we know that there's plenty of transactions, right? There's, and this is, this is something that I don't know if you're a a fan of Tim Ferriss, but one of my favorite Tim Ferriss quotes is, and this is kind of paraphrasing him a little bit, but it's opportunity is infinite, right? And you, you, you have to sort of understand that essentially you can create opportunities at will. What it's really about is, is selection and cultivating, you know, the best opportunities and taking actually executing on those, right? It's easy to come up with lots and lots of ideas and lots and lots of things you can do. What you have to do is really whittle down and only focus on the select few. But in a context specific to negotiation, right, it's all about the ability to walk away, right? You need to know, you need to be courting. I mean, it, it, and it's very context dependent depending on what you're going to do. But in this, and this gets into the preparation process too, but like you should be researching like 
If you're purchasing a car, you should be researching what a, what a comparable vehicles cost. If you're looking for a new job, you should figure out what would your salary be if you were to go to you know a competitor or what what's the average sort of pay rate for the position that you're looking for. You want to get as much data, as much research as you can. And research and data is a form of leverage, right? If you can say, hey, the market rate for this position is X and you're paying me you know 60% of X, like you need to give me a raise or I can go to one of these other companies and get a new job. The flip side of that is if you're an employer and a com- an employee comes to you and says, hey, I'm not making enough. And you say, well, actually, for the position that you're in, you're, you know, here's what the comparable salary ranges would be for a bunch of different places or for, for a bunch of different sort of comparables. And you're actually being overpaid by like 25 percent. Right. And so having data is a huge way to create leverage, but it's also kind of intertwined with creating options. The simplest way to think about it is if you're, again, using just employment as something that everybody or most people deal with, if you're applying to one job and that's it, right, you're going to get worse terms and you're going to get a worse offer than if you apply to a job or you've applied to 10 jobs and two or three of them give you an offer. And you could say, hey, this offer sounds really good, but I just wanted to let you know that the guy down the street's offering me $10,000 more a year and more vacation time and X, Y, Z, but I really want to work with your company you know, is there anything you can do? And you might get some kind of concessions from them, whether it's more salary or more flexibility or whatever you want to get out of that negotiation. Having optionality and cultivating those different options is a great way to kind of create impartiality in yourself about like, look, this sounds great, but the reality is I'm not going to do this because I've got better options. Right. And I will also say, Bonus points for you because you uh, dropped the the reference to Tim Ferriss, one of my favorite authors in the business world, too. So yep. you're the first person on the podcast to, to refer to Tim. So that, I'm excited nice. about that. <laughs> bonus points. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge Tim Ferriss fan. Yeah. So for the listeners out there who don't know Tim Ferriss, check out his work, especially the four-hour work week. That's like the Bible of uh, our generation of entrepreneurs, really. <laughs> Pretty much. Very nice. Yeah. And and you covered it perfectly. You are only as strong as your best alternative. And um, you also mentioned to the the willingness to walk away. And can you talk about your perspective on bluffing? Like, let's say, oh, I have a deal and um, the terms aren't exactly where I, I want, but I'm going to fake like I'm going to walk away. What is your opinion on that? I think in certain situations, it's beneficial to bluff. And I think it's a calculated decision, right? Bluffing really comes from, it's a way to sort of manufacture leverage when you don't actually have any. And it's high risk, high reward in the sense that if you're not able to generate additional leverage, you can try to bluff that you have leverage. And, you know, there's an X percent of the time it's going to work out, but there's also a percent of the time where your bluff gets called and then, you know, you're basically dead in the water. (laughs) Right. And so it's definitely a calculated risk. But if you're in a situation that and sometimes you are in a negotiation where you don't have any flexibility and you need to try and do something to move the needle or something to to make something happen, I think, you know, in some of those instances, you have to bluff. And and I'm the poker player. And this analogy probably will ring true for anyone else who who plays poker. Even when you're bluffing, you want to try and make what's called in poker a semi bluff. Right. And a semi bluff is like and I'll try to make this as simple as possible for people who don't play poker, but basically a pure bluff is when you bluff and you have a terrible hand, right? Like you have a hand that has no chance of winning. So you take it to, let's say 10% chance of winning. If there's a 10% chance they'll fold or whatever it might be, that's just a pure bluff. A semi bluff is where you take a hand 
that has a chance to pan out. Let's say you have a draw of some kind. So there's there are cards that you can hit that your hand will actually become the best hand. But let's say there's only like a 20 or 30% chance that you'll hit that draw. You semi-bluff, which means you bet like you have a, a made hand already. And you win the pot two ways. You can either win it when they fold or you can win it if your semi-bluff actually hits and you hit your draw. Similarly, bluffing and negotiation, if like you want your bluffs to have some kind of material support, right? Like if you're trying to sell your company to somebody and you have, you know, you only have one buyer, you want to try and cultivate multiple suitors, ideally to start a bidding war to get the best possible terms, all this stuff. You know, if you're in a really desperate situation and you only have one bidder, you might have a guy who you're talking to that hasn't given you a term sheet, hasn't given you a firm offer, but you can say, look, I've got another party that's really interested. You know, I can't tell you too much about, you know, what they've said to me because I'm under confidentiality, but, you know, I really need you to get me an offer by the end of this week because the other party is very interested, right? And the reality is maybe they're interested, maybe they're not, and they may never give you an offer, may never give you anything, but, you know, there's a chance that it pans out and that other party actually does give you a term sheet, which you can then say, look, I've got another deal. Sorry, I'm going to move forward with that. Or there's a chance that they just go away and then you're kind of jammed if the other people are like, yeah, that's fine. We're not that interested. You can go with the other party and then you've got no suitors anymore. Right. And I'm glad you you brought up that distinction between a bluff and a semi-bluff because I think that is a really nuanced approach because people who just go out and, and bluff, I describe it almost like the uh, the negotiator's version of a Hail Mary you know, in, in football. The reason why we don't throw Hail Marys all the time is because it's risky. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. You know, but uh, yeah, that's a key distinction, the semi-bluff. And um, it's a safer option than just kind of making these big performances when there's really no substance behind it. One thing that I tell the listeners, I told them earlier, like, oh my gosh, almost a year ago, that's crazy. Make the distinction between a bluff and a warning where Imagine if you're driving up to a cliff and you see a sign that says, don't proceed, you'll fall off this cliff. The sign isn't bluffing. That's a warning. So it's like alerting people of the natural consequences of their actions. So it's like, if you do this, then this will happen. And so warnings, there's little risk in warning. If you are that person where it's like, listen, you're you're way beyond my number. I can't do that. If that's where you are, we're going to have to walk away. That's different. And so that's not what we're talking about here. The bluffing is like, there's a little bit of uncertainty behind what you're saying and another component of this and this ties into a little bit to bluffing but it's also sort of a way another way to manufacture leverage if you don't have a lot of leverage in a negotiation is to remove yourself as the decision maker and by that i mean and and it's always possible to to sort of create a a straw man in the negotiation that is sort of gets the final say Right. So if you're married and you're thinking about buying a car, it can be your spouse. If you're the CEO of a company and you're thinking, well, there's nobody that can be the straw man, the board of directors can be the straw man, right? Or your business partners can be the straw man. There's always somebody that you can sort of take it back to and say, look, my board is being extremely hardline about this. They're only going to accept X, Y, Z. I know it's ridiculous, right? And this kind of you, you can, you become sort of the reasonable party that's on their side. And you're like, look, I totally get it. Like, I understand you guys only want to spend X, right? I totally see like where you're coming from. It makes a lot of sense. I'm just letting you know, like my business partners, they're, they're not going to go for that. Like they're being really unreasonable. I totally agree. I'm just the messenger here. And I'm telling you, that's not going to work. Uh, you know, I can take what you're giving me and kind of shop it back to them, but it's probably going to come back, you know, torn to pieces. And so when you remove yourself 
from like if you're actually at the negotiating table, you never want to be the person that's that's making, quote unquote, the final decision. Right. You want to be sort of the communicator and say, I've got to run that up the flagpole. I've got to make sure that X, Y, Z person or group of people is okay with that. And so it's kind of a double edged thing. And one, you can you can become the ally, you become the reasonable party. And two, you never hard commit to anything that could that you you may want to back out of later. Right. So if there's a term that you're sort of unsure about in the deal, you can say, yeah, I think that makes sense. And to me, it makes sense. But I need to take it to my board and I need to see what they will think about it. And I just want to let you know, like, I think it makes sense. And I but they might come back and say, you know, it's ridiculous. And so that gives you the ability to sort of step away and, you know, come back. And the next time you have a conversation, you can be like, even if you never even talk to your board, right? Like you can be like, yeah, you know, I decided it's a terrible idea. And then you can come back and say, look, my board was really, they just couldn't get on board with this particular piece of the deal. But I, you know, I really, I like you guys, I really still want to put something together. Is there any way we can work around it? I love it. And did you have Chris Voss on your show before? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I had Chris yeah, he was on our show, too. And so yeah, in, he's the in, man. Oh, he's amazing. Everybody keeps asking, can you have Chris back on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, he uh, in, in his book, Never Split the Difference, he mentioned that the best negotiators are the ones who seem like they have the least amount of power at the table. And yep. then he took it to the next level and said, if somebody is kind of playing that same kind of hard to get really tough to nail down type of a uh, game with you, you can kind of get at their ego by implying that they don't have a lot of power. And usually when you do that to people, their ego will make make them step up and say, no, I, I do have the power. And it kind of puts them back as the decision maker at the table. So it puts them in a tough position because now they can actually commit. And so that's a kind of the reverse angle of that. So you want to make people feel as though you don't have as much power. You need to go back and check. But if somebody's doing that same thing to you, you can subtly say something that plays at their ego saying, oh, I understand you don't have that kind of authority in your company. And they're like, exactly. Yeah. What? It's like, oh, should we should we be meeting with your boss instead? Is that the right person? Or, <laughs> you know, I thought you had the authority to be able to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and then hopefully after that, they're like, oh, I have the authority. We're buying this right now. <laughs> um, you know, one of my favorite Chris Voss quotes, and I'm sure he mentioned in your interview, and but it ties back into the question you asked about bluffing, too, which is, he says, never lie to anyone that you're not going to kill, right? And obviously, as a, <laughs> as, a as an FBI hostage negotiator, the, sometimes they were going to be literally killing people to get the hostages out. Um, but it's really interesting when you think about it. And it, it basically boils down to, you know, you don't need to lie to people to effectively negotiate. And, and I think that goes back to the whole idea of the kind of Venn diagram, right? It's all about creating win-win relationships and win-win transactions. It's not about manipulating people. It's about really deeply understanding them and figuring out, is there a way to align what they want and what you want in, in kind of a win-win scenario? Right. And even taking that a little step further, too, if you lie to somebody and then they catch you in that lie, you have lost all credibility with that person. And not only that, people talk. And that gets out in the in the workplace, in the uh, yep. in the marketplace. Now you've lost credibility with that community. And so yep. when uh, people talk to me and they ask about lying and deception and negotiation, I can honestly say that I've never lied, not because I am uh, the epitome of morality here, but just because I want to be good at what I do. <laughs> I'm not willing to take that risk because, again, it's it's high risk, high reward. It's just ultimately not worth it. 
And then thinking back to your Venn diagram example, which I think is a brilliant way to visualize this. I look at negotiation as the art of deal discovery, not the art of deal making. You can't exactly. force it that's, if it's not yep. there. Yeah, that's hundred percent agree with that. Awesome. 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 So let's talk about the preparation. Let's nerd out on this a little bit because you talked about how you start to you vet the people before we even get to the negotiation stage. Now, let's say somebody has made it through that vetting process. What does it look like when you're preparing for that actual conversation? And I think we've you know, we've sort of in a roundabout way through this conversation hit a lot of the points that I think are critical in the preparation phase, right? Like one of them that I touched on is you want to do a lot of research, right? Data is an incredible sort of impartial arbiter in any negotiation and getting comparable data, getting things, you know, like if, again, if we're talking about cars, getting the price of other vehicles or prices from other dealerships or looking at what it would cost to buy it online, all of these different things, similar in a salary negotiation, getting the comparable salary ranges, all of that stuff, like doing a bunch of research and getting, as much data as you can that supports your argument and kind of supports your position is a critical component of preparing for any negotiation. Another component which we talked about is kind of the whittling things down and really sort of before you even get to the negotiation, doing as much preparation to determine and kind of find people that you're going to be negotiating with that are the right people. And that eliminates the need to do a lot of unnecessary prep because if you filter down and kind of whittle down you already have pre-qualified the people you're meeting with to a huge degree, and it's a much more fruitful conversation. The other thing that you, you, you know, to me is a core component of preparation goes back to creating options, right? If you're looking to sell your company and you're, and you're negotiating with somebody, part of the preparation, I strongly believe, is to go and find and try to cultivate other opportunities so that in that negotiation, you can say, look, I just wanted to be open with you guys. I've got, you know, four other conversations going on and I can't tell you, you know, where they are, but I just wanted to let you know that like, this isn't the only conversation we're having. Right. And that creates some kind of scarcity that creates a little bit of time pressure that creates kind of that, you know, they're more interested in the opportunity. They know that somebody else might be able to take it. And so it kind of taps into a few of the different psychological biases and lets you, you know, gives you leverage in the negotiation. So to me, the preparation phase is all about doing things so that you can generate leverage during the negotiation itself. Right. Are there any specific tactics you enjoy using? Yeah. I mean, to me, uh, the one that we talked about a moment ago, removing yourself as the decision maker and kind of having a straw man that's outside of you that says yes or no is a huge one. And the other one is just listening, right? Active listening, which is sort of a term of art that specifically describes you know, the process of really listening to what somebody's saying and kind of parroting, you know, back what they say and inquiring and like digging in. I think that the single biggest thing missing from a lot of people's negotiation toolkit is a deep focus on understanding what the other person wants. And so to me, that's a huge component. Like I spend most conversations, I'll just keep asking like explanatory and discovery questions, just like, okay, tell me about this. Tell me about this. Tell me about what we want. Tell me about it. Boom. And it's like, okay, like now that I know all that stuff, it's really easy for me to see how a transaction might get pieced together. Man, I wish you could see my face. It's just a big, huge smile, huge smile. <laughs> Cause that that's, it, it's a perfect approach. Just perfect approach. It's almost, I've heard it described as investigatory negotiation where you go yep. in with curiosity, just asking questions and seeking understanding. And people would say, is that it? That's it? It's like, well, maybe not necessarily it, but it's about 90 to 95% of what it is, you know, just listening. The funny thing is I use that approach 
for most things in my life. And it's really, you know, any situation that seems complex or sort of unsolvable or whatever it might be, if you just keep digging in to where you can distill that situation or that problem or that opportunity down into the fundamental kind of building blocks, just the really simple components that underpin all the stuff that's going on, a lot of times it's almost self-evident to everyone in the conversation what the next step actually is, right? Or what needs to happen. Yeah. And it's essentially when you do it right, it turns almost into a, a brainstorming session of sorts where you ask the questions and it turns into joint problem solving. It's like, okay, yeah, now we can both see where we should go. I think that's brilliant. And also, too, for the listeners, you can see how approaching it in this way takes a lot of pressure off of you because you don't need to feel that pressure to force something. It just happens organically when you're curious in these conversations. Yep. Exactly. I could talk to you about this all day. This is, <laughs> this is cool, but we're coming up on time here. So I wanted to ask you this question. If you could challenge our audience to do one thing to make them better negotiators, what would it be? I mean, I think it's just what we were talking about. Listen more, right? Focus on listening. And I would say even outside of negotiation, I would say a lot of people get caught up in sort of the ego trap of not wanting to ask really simple questions because they're afraid to look dumb. I pretty much spend most of my conversations just asking really basic questions to people because I want to understand, like I was just saying, I want to understand all of the moving parts. I want to understand all of the really basic fundamentals of whatever is going on. And so I would say, ask dumb questions and ask simple questions and ask the questions you're afraid to ask and just listen, focus on understanding what the other person wants and really, you know, digging into what their needs are. And I think you'd be surprised how the answers sometimes just sort of fall out naturally when you do that. Right. And this is something that you can do in, in everyday conversations. I had uh, two meetings earlier today and I almost turned it into a game. These aren't negotiations. I'm just networking. And I would play this game where I would say, I want to see how little I can speak in this conversation and just ask yep. questions and let the person go. And what is so interesting about this is that people would say, oh, Kwame, you're so smart. And it's like, I barely said anything. <laughs> exactly. This has happened multiple times where people I'm just meeting for the first time, they're like, I haven't told anybody this, but this is my breakthrough business idea. And what's crazy is that just because you're doing what so few people take the time to do, which is listen, it generates instant trust. And so they feel comfortable telling you things, even if it might be compromising, just because you listened. I totally agree. And I'll throw this other little tidbit in as well. Silence can actually be an incredible sort of weapon in negotiation. And if you, a lot of times, if somebody sort of ends their sentence and you just keep silent and just keep looking at them, there will be this sort of intermittent awkward pause. And then they will feel the need to keep talking to fill the pause. And a lot of times information will just start to kind of spill out and they'll keep, you know, they'll explain more of their position or kind of give something away or like tell you more than you, than you thought. And you don't have to say anything. Like you can just be silent and, and just wait for them to get uncomfortable with the silence and then fill it with something. Congratulations, you've just joined an elite club. By listening to a full episode, you're now officially on the Negotiate Anything team. So welcome aboard. 
what most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episodes of the show. The best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. Keep learning, keep practicing, and keep getting better. Your relationships will improve, your career will soar, and you'll have the confidence you need to get the most out of these crucial conversations. Again, thank you for joining the team. We're excited to have you, and I will see you in the next episode. I'll catch you later.